Hello, I'm Carrie. And I'm Emily, and we are the voices of Tarbis. What's Tarbis, I hear you ask? Well, Tarbis is a blog that we do together, and where we visit historical houses or places of historical import, and we blog about them, basically giving uh, our opinions on the place, um, how well it's presented, facilities, things like that, and sandwiches, because we love sandwiches. And that is in our name. But we decided that we wanted to do another medium. We wanted to do a podcast to talk more in depth about lots of different aspects of history, not just a specific era of the place that we're visiting. So we will go from Stone Age to Victorians, inventors, monarchs, everything here. And you'll hear some of our opinions and what we think and possibly some debates. Indeed, and we would encourage you as well to get in touch. You can leave reviews um, or you can you can contact us through our blog um, just to see what you think or if there's any particular people, places, events, things like that that you'd like us to talk about, we'd be more than happy to do that. Yep, so sit back, relax and enjoy Tarbus After Hours. The great air battle which has been in progress over this island for the last few weeks has recently attained a high intensity. It is too soon to attempt to assign limits either to its scale or to its duration. We must certainly expect that greater efforts will be made by the enemy than any he has put forth. Hostile airfields are still being developed in France and the Low Countries, and the movement of squadrons and material for attacking us is still proceeding. It is quite plain, sir, that Herr Hitler could not admit defeat in his air attack on Great Britain without sustaining most serious injury. If, after all his boastings and blood-curdling threats and lurid accounts trumpeted round the world of the damage he had inflicted, of the vast numbers of our air force he has shot down, so he says, with so little loss to himself, if after tales of the panic-stricken British crushed in their holes, cursing the plutocratic parliament which has led them to such a plight. If after all this, his whole air onslaught were forced, after a while, tamely to peter out, the Führer's reputation for veracity of statement might be seriously impugned. We may be sure, therefore, that he will continue, as long as he has the strength to do so, and as long as any preoccupation he may have in respect of the Russian Air Force, allow him to do so. On the other hand, the conditions and course of the fighting have so far been favorable to us. I told the House two months ago that whereas in France our fighter aircraft were wont to inflict a loss of two or three to one upon the Germans, and in the fighting at Dunkirk, which was a kind of no-man's land, a loss of about three or four to one, We expected that in an attack on this island, we should achieve a larger ratio. This has certainly come true. It must also be remembered that all the enemy machines and pilots which are shot down over our island or over the seas which surround it are either destroyed or captured. Whereas a considerable proportion of our machines and also of our pilots are saved and soon again in many cases come into action. The gratitude of every home in our island, in our empire, and indeed throughout the world, except in the abodes of the guilty, goes out to the British airmen 
who, undaunted by odds, unwearied in their constant challenge and mortal danger, are turning the tide of the world war by their prowess and by their devotion. Never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. Um, immortal words there by the, the great Winston Churchill. That was his speech that was given um, about and following the Battle of Britain. Those words, they literally just bring a chill to my spine. I've got goosebumps. He's, uh, the man was a fantastic orator. There's, there's no, no two ways about that. Yeah, you'd listen to him. You'd follow him. Definitely. I'd without follow doubt. Churchill. Without doubt. Now, in case you hadn't noticed, this week's podcast is on the Battle of Britain. And there is a very specific reason for this. There is. Um, at the time of recording this, it is the 16th of September. Yesterday, being the 15th, was... The 78th anniversary of the Battle of Britain. Or one of the most influential days in the Battle of Britain. Yeah. Because um, the, the battle itself um, lasted for 122 days, was it? Yeah. Um, between the 10th of July to the 31st of October, 1940. And um, it was... Well, it was really something, wasn't it? It was... Basically, Hitler was trying to take control of the British skies because he knew he couldn't um, do it overseas because the English Navy was far superior um, to the German um, Navy. So he thought the only way he could get over to England and to conquer Britain was to conquer its skies. And they, I think they were acting on, um, on false information or skewed information shall we say because they had the idea that um, particularly at the point of the 15th of September that the British Royal Air Force was it was a lot more depleted than it was and it was pretty much on its last legs so they launched an offensive and um, quite frankly it didn't go to plan not not it's not the greatest in German history no but to start off with Let's go. Um, let's go back to the beginning. Okay. And the first thing to do, I think, would be to talk about the two main players in this. Yeah. Um, it was just after the Battle of France. Yes, it was. And um, you mentioned earlier that the Battle of Britain—that was a, a phrase actually coined by Churchill before the Battle of Britain even started. Yeah. Um, he uh, well, kind of. Yeah. He had. A, he did a speech on the eighteenth of June, mm-hmm. nineteen forty, and it was just after the, the German and the French war the mm-hmm. French had surrendered and he'd said in his speech the battle of France is over I expect the battle of Britain is about to begin so another turn of phrase by the infamous Winston Churchill right there yeah indeed I mean honestly that the man is just he's responsible for so many phrases wits and witticisms that uh, he's, he was incredible but anyway um, so it was after that the German Air Force, they'd been... the German, um, Germany, as as we understand Germany, um, obviously it wasn't actually properly Germany in the way we know it back no. then, um, they had been prohibited from having an Air Force as part of the Treaty of Versailles Disarmament Clauses. Um, but when the Nazi government were in power, they reinstated the Luftwaffe, um, and they, they grew exponentially. But obviously, in response to that, the RAF, the Royal Air Force, became an independent branch of the British Armed Forces in 1918, and they also grew rapidly as a response to the threat from Nazi Germany. So our Air Force grew in response to their Air Force. 
and um, they there were some quite there were, there were a load of different types of airplanes that flew, mm. but um, there were some I think we can say fairly iconic ones. A couple come spring to my mind. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, we've we've done some research on this, and the websites that we've been using are, uh, are linked in the notes of the show. So, if you want to have a look yourself, by all means, please do. Yeah. Um, but the the information, basically, the main ones. Um, these are the about the top top eight or nine. Okay. Okay. Obviously, the most recognisable, I'd say, for our our forces, or the two most recognisable, the Supermarine Spitfire. Yep. And the Hawker Hurricane. Spitfire and Hurricanes. Yeah. Yep. Um, the Spitfire, it was originally designed by uh, Reginald Mitchell, and um, it was one of the main strengths of the Spitfire was that it was it was fast, it was quite an agile plane. Um, however, did you know it actually took longer to construct each Spitfire than it did a Hurricane, even though the Hurricane was bigger? Yeah, well I do now. Yep, um, and it didn't fly until August 1938, where it flew for the first time with the number 19 squadron out of Duxford. Ah, Duxford. That's not that far from here. It's not at all. Although I am ashamed to say I've never been to uh, Duxford. Don't worry. We'll, we will shall rectify that. You're, Good. You're, you're in Norfolk now. You need to see Duxford, even though I know it's in Cambridgeshire. Eh, it's all sort of East Anglia, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, right, the Spitfire, they did fantastic. Um, we'll come back to the, the kill numbers in a, in a minute, but the total number of downed enemy craft by the Spitfires, 529. Wow. And they lost 230 Spitfires. So that's 1-0 to the Spitfires. Yep. And obviously the Hawker Hurricane, um, they actually, they were spread across 33 different squadrons by uh, the time September 1940 rolled around. So by the time the 15th rolled around. Um, And they themselves accounted for 656 German aircraft. Wow. Between the 30th of July to the 16th of September alone, 404 Hurricanes were destroyed. Wow. And that's, when you're just talking like this, it's easy to think of them as just planes, like yeah. empty drones. But if you think, each one was probably about a four to six man crew. That's 404 planes of four to six men. Some of them might have survived, some of them might not. How many is that? Let's do the math. Um, that's 404 planes. And if we say, if we go for a four man crew... That's 1,616. And that was just between um, July 30th of July to the 16th of September. Well, so, what, five weeks? Yeah. Roughly, give or, that, give or take. That's an extortion. Oh, we said that's a lot, but... Yeah, it's it's shocking. Um, also on our side mm-hmm. was the uh, Bolton Paul Defiant. That was a two-seater fighter, and it had a... Go- Can't get my words out now. That's okay. <laughs> Four gun operated power tu- power operated turret. Now that was it was useful as long as you were behind the aircraft. If you were in front of it, you were fine. It couldn't shoot in front. It couldn't turn the turret around to shoot planes from behind. Um, however, there was they still insisted on using these planes despite the problems with them. And um, they sent out numbers 141 and 264 squadrons in July and August, respectively. Okay. Um, They sent them out still to fly, knowing that these turrets didn't work and knowing that the Germans probably knew that. And it was, quite frankly, a disaster. That is crazy. 
yeah, they the planes were pulled after that. They uh, they weren't used again. I know, like I would say, every person who fights in the armed forces is incredible, especially in the world wars. Mm. But imagine knowing that you're getting into a plane that's broken, into a plane that didn't quite work. <laughs> you probably didn't have a whole lot of training on it because they they didn't have much no. much in the way of training, did they? They mostly sort of. I think it was a couple of days, if that, and then mm. drawn up. They're a different. They were cut from a different sort of cloth. They were, back. but they were fantastic for it. I mean, we we joke about the Brill Queen boys and uh, things, but the RAF back then were well. The RAF in general, all the armed forces were amazing. Yes. Now let's talk about the other side. Hmm. One of the most iconic German planes was the Messerschmitt, who were basically it was basically their equivalent of the Spitfire. Okay. But did you know they had two types of um, Messerschmitt? They had the uh, BF one hundred and nine. Which was um, it was faster at high altitudes than Spitfire, so it had that advantage, um, and it could it could dive quicker. Mm. Um, that one carried two cannons, two machine guns, but there was a problem: its fuel tanks were not very big, and um, it couldn't fly beyond London, and it only had seven seconds worth of cannon ammunition. Seven seconds. Seven seconds. They really needed to be on target when they shot us, didn't they? Yeah. Um, they the Luftwaffe had a total of one thousand one hundred of these BF one hundred nines. Okay. And uh, six hundred and fifty were shot down. That's about half. Jeez, we're good. Yep. Um, they also had the uh, Messerschmitt BF one one ten, um, which was more of a heavy range uh, fighter. So it was it was more of a long range one. Um, it was called a Zestura in German, which means destroyer. Um, it was well armed. But it couldn't really manoeuvre. However, it was really, really good at uh, low-level attacks. So um, it was used to bomb factories, RAF airfields, things like that. They also had the Heinkel H111, mm-hmm. which was better at the start of the war, but was more or less obsolete by 1940. Um, and could, could only carry a bomb load of 2,000 kilograms. So it wasn't really useful for strategy. It doesn't sound like either of their planes were that fabulous. No. It had to be very precise. They also had the Dornier D017, whose nickname was the Flying Pencil. Was it thin, by any chance? Yeah. It was, pointy. <laughs> it was based on a pre-war design, which was actually for a high-speed high speed mail plane. But then the uh, the Nazi Air Ministry converted it into a bomber during the war. And uh, it didn't get past summer 1940. They stopped producing it then. And um, the last ones were Junkers, and they were they were the more modern ones. Um, they were used. They first flew in uh, December nineteen thirty six, and they one of the nicknames was the Stucker. And mm. I'll, you're going to have to forgive my pronunciation. Anyone who's German listening, it's the Sturzkampfflugzeug. Mm-hmm. I think that wasn't too bad. Thank you. Um, it's basically it was the Junker eighty seven. That was the favourite plane of the Luftwaffe High Command and could use pinpoint precision in a near-vertical dive. Wow. Yep. Uh, however, on the 18th of August 1940, 12 of them were shot down, and others crashed or damaged. So whilst they were fantastic, they were the most precision, high-precision, and the best airplanes that they had, comparatively with the others, mm. they didn't fare that well either. Wow, fabulous. No, huh. not at all. Um, it was... I think... It was due to our expertise and our pilots and everything, but you also had the expertise of the flight command. Yeah. So, tell us a little bit about the flight command. 
Well, Britain was um, divided by the RAF mm-hmm. in geological areas called groups. Yep. Which obviously sounds quite simple, groups. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was then further divided into sectors. So right. you had groups that were then divided into sectors. Each sector then had a main airfield called the sector station. Right. You with me? Groups, the sectors, the sector stations. Um, With this, um, there was an operations room from which the men um, were directed. Yeah. They were directed the information from the groundbreaking radar, Mm -hmm. uh, which was pioneered in uh, in the battles. Um, It was passed to the filter room at the Bentley Priory. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, the fighter command situated just outside Watford. So that's Bentley Priory? Yeah. All right, okay. Yeah, so um, the information was then passed to the relevant groups. Mm-hmm. So Bentley Priory got the information, passed it to the groups. Mm-hmm. The groups would then send them to the sectors and then sent to the sector stations and mm-hmm. then scrambled and then they were given to the pilots. Right. So it's basically like, you know, like a domino effect, but mm-hmm. going down. So wow. it went from Bentley... Down and down and down as it goes. Obviously, it had to be really like a really efficient system, didn't it? Yeah, it needed to be because it was, and it needed to be a system that was clear because obviously, you know, like Chinese whispers, you hear one thing, by the time it gets to the end, it's completely changed. Yeah. So they needed it to be clear enough that when it went from Bentley Priory down to the pilots, Mm -hmm. it's gone through four or five stages. So it needed to be clear enough that it didn't get changed or misinterpreted or anything like that. Mm Live updates were then relayed to the airborne fighters by radio. Okay. So not only was it given to the pilots, it was then sent to people who were flying. So it definitely had to be clear to get over the radio yeah. at altitude as well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, which is quite cool. Um, the operation rooms were also detected anti-aircraft um, guns, searchlights and um, barrage balloons. So not just the planes, they they were, co- they were in control of all of those as well? Yeah. Oh, wow, that's, that's quite a quite a big operation isn't it definitely you can kind of see why uh, germans may have you know mis- in, misunderstood the uh, the might that britain had in the raf at this point especially considering um if i'm right in thinking a lot of those like the uh, the sector stations and things a lot of the operation rooms were actually underground weren't they in bunkers yeah. so they wouldn't have been able to see it they would have just seen the airfield and a couple of buildings they wouldn't have seen <laughs> what was underground yeah and they didn't have radar no they didn't no um, isn't there a funny story about radar? Yeah, actually. Um, <laughs> this is, I don't, not be mean to any Germans at all, and no offence is intended. But Germans, you know that old wives' tale where you used to be told, parents used to tell their kids um, <laughs> when to make them eat their veg, eat carrots, you better see in the dark. Yeah. You've heard that, right? Yeah, you I've heard that. said it to you. I mean, I the, wear glasses, it didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> the Germans believed it. So this was a World War Two thing? Yeah, they ate carrots because they believed that the English could see in the dark because they ate carrots. So wait, they, they didn't know we had radar. They thought that's genuinely how we did it, by eating carrots. Uh-huh. And that was literally <laughs> one of um, one of the Germans. They made terrible mistakes in this, right? Yeah. And um, the head of the Luftwaffe was Hermann Göring. Mm-hmm. And he failed to recognise the importance of radar. Mm. So he called off um, attacks on any known radar sites in August of 1940. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, um, it was one of a string of tactical blunders actually made by Goring, mm. who was actually um, a World War One air ace and a trusted lieutenant to um, Adolf Hitler. Whoops. So, yeah, he was in World War One and he was an air ace. Um, and 
that so when it comes to radar he seriously misjudged the importance of it um oh dear yeah <laughs> he had one job yeah he, he kind of did yeah and um the intelligence obviously seriously underestimated British strength and often failed to identify key bombing targets, mm-hmm. which is probably because a lot of it was obviously underground. Um, but another thing, just to go back to the Messerschmitt um, pilots, um, Goring ordered them to fly in close formation and guard each other right. rather than pursue the enemy. Oh. Yeah. See, there was... I mean, there was something very, very similar to that that um, one of our pilots did. Have you ever heard of Douglas Bader? I have, and I'm not going to lie, it's because <laughs> of Horrible Histories. Yeah, I, I, I knew that was coming when they asked the question. Um, <laughs> if you never w- watch a show, do it. It's it's fantastic. It's, it's hilarious. It's hilarious. It's not just for kids, honestly. Um, we have learned a hell of a lot from it. Yes, and they do a, a RAF fi- pilots? <laughs> flight of pilots. <laughs> song and there is a whole uh whole verse to uh douglas yeah so Um, uh he had a or he rather had an idea with one of his uh, commanders to fly in what's called a big wing yeah and um basically that big wing is it was all the planes together in one formation and um they they sort of they would come up and it would just be all in one formation and they, then they would attack the Germans to kind of meet them head on. Mm-hmm. Now, in theory, not that great. However, on the 15th of September, that really worked because with all the other um, attacks that the squadrons were doing, particularly number 11 yeah. um, sector, who were, they, they covered the London area, not all that area, um, they had been harassing the Germans since about... Um, since they first started coming over. So talk, talking about half eight in the morning, roughly, give or take. Okay. Um, the first wave of German fighters came over. They'd been harassing them, and one pilot is known to have said that when he saw the big wing coming up, which is the, the, the conglomeration of all the planes, when he saw that coming up, he thought there was at least 80-odd planes in there, and it scared the bejeebas out of him. <laughs> Obviously, he didn't say that. He no way of that way. it. Yeah. Um, however, there was only 56 but because of all the the atmosphere and everything that was being caused by the other pil- the other planes and one of the greatest defense systems this little country has the weather <laughs> it looked like so much more because there's um, there's a lot of reports of uh, high winds delaying the planes uh, from germany over the channel low cloud cover storms things like that causing all sorts of problems and havoc with the german equipment with the german planes and um, disorientating their pilots things like that to the point where they dropped bombs like way off target and uh yeah I mean, i'm shaking my head i'm, I'm aware <laughs> that we're doing a podcast and you cannot see my head shake but it is it's there it, it is a kind of a running joke though because if you think about pretty much Every invasion, more or less, at some point, has had a problem with the weather. I mean, you look at the Romans, you look at the Spanish Armada, um, the Henry Tudor, he couldn't bring his uh, his forces over at first mm. because of the weather, and now the Germans in the Battle of Britain couldn't because of the weather. So, thank you, British weather. We complain about you, <laughs> but you're always there when we need you. Yeah. Right. Now on to radar. Right, yes. Are you going to talk about the Dowling system now? I am indeed. Now, this was a very, very clever system, and even Churchill recognised that. There was a gentleman, Air Chief Marshal Hugh Dowding, 
sometimes um, nicknamed Stuffy. And um, the RAF, they do like their nicknames, didn't they? They, they really do. I mean, I don't think that's changed, to be honest. I think that's still pretty much the same. Yeah. Um, they he had this complex system of what were called filter rooms and plotting maps, um, and they were basically large rooms where that was where the radar information went to, and then it went to loads of mostly women sitting there in headsets who would be waiting for the first news from the radar to come, and then as soon as that happened, they would then pick up their headsets, they would receive that information, and then they would put it like tiny game pieces on a giant map. And they would move them around with like shuffle sticks. Basically yeah. like a giant game of risk. Oh, right, yeah. And um, they'd move them around according to where the radar said they were. And from there, they would be able to plot the Germans' movements and then scramble our pilots to intercept. It didn't always work, but then it really, really showed its promise on the, uh, on the 15th of September because it worked fantastically and it allowed us to intercept the, the um, Germans early on and create that as a decisive victory um he churchill actually referred to it after seeing it in action on the 15th because he went down to the bunker and actually saw it live in action he watched the entire that entire day although he technically was in trouble that day because it was actually his wife's birthday oh yeah mrs churchill it was her birthday and um, uh, he forgot he did yeah he forgot so uh, apparently her response to him was to get her get her a bag of german airplanes which, At least she was understanding. I yeah. mean, come on. I mean, to be fair, if you're the wife of Winston Churchill, you can't be anything but understanding. Well. I mean, the man barely slept. He did his work in bed and everything. So you had to be understanding. But, um, yeah, she he actually took her with him into the bunker. And Aww. they watched it from one of these soundproof booths up above and watched everything going on. And Churchill referred to the Dowding system as uh, the most elaborate instrument of war. Wow. Now, that is, that is one hell of a compliment. Yeah. It really is. But um, we've talked about the radar. Mm-hmm. We've talked about um, the the planes. We have. Let's have a little word about the pilots. Okay. Okay. So um, there were by calling it the British Air Force, the Royal Air Force, it's not really giving full credit to the pilots themselves. Because yeah. Because uh, more than fifteen percent of the RF are. Put my words back. What? Oh. <laughs> Try again. <laughs> More than 15% of the RAF pilots weren't actually British. No, um, they, they came from all over the Commonwealth and occupied Europe as well. So you had um, pilots from places like New Zealand, New South Wales, um, Poland, Czechoslovakia. Canada. Yeah, Canada. Um, loads and loads, loads more than, than just the British. And they were fantastic. And um, this is where we... We're going to give a little honorary notice here mm-hmm. because um, there is there was a character that only just came to light yeah. during our uh, during our research here, and um, his name is Joseph Frantischek, and he was a uh, a Czech pilot with number three hundred three fighter squadron, and is an, has the accolade of being the highest scoring pilot of the battle. His squadron had one hundred and twenty six kills. Mm-hmm. And became Fighter Command's highest claiming squadron, despite join, only joining the battle on thirty first of August. Wow! Yeah, um, he was originally from Czechoslovakia. However, when um, the the Czech government said that the people should peacefully allow um, the German invasion, he then fled to Poland, fought with Poland. After Poland fell, went to France. After <laughs> France fell, came to England. 
and to be honest with you, that their loss was our gain. He was fantastic. Unfortunately, he was uh, he was killed in in action, um, which is a great loss. But he was incredible. So noti- notable mention here to Joseph Frantisek, and to in fact all of the pilots. Thank you. And we Did you all- say there's a, a movie being made? Yeah, there is. Um, it's coming out soon, based on the number three hundred three squadron, um, and I think I think it might be slated for release possibly later on this year um if we find out more about it we'll put it in the in the info um but judging by some of the cast it's it's due to be a really good film and fantasek is a character in it as well yeah um but it's not just the few not just the pilots yes and we also have to talk about the the riggers the fitters the armorers repair and maintenance engineers that worked in the ground crews um your factory workers uh your observation corps that were actually made up of thousands of volunteers and they would often stand on the roofs of buildings with binoculars looking out for the Germans, making themselves a pretty visible target sometimes. Um, There was also the anti-aircraft gunners, the searchlight operators, barrage balloon crews, the Women's Auxiliary Air Force. Yay, big up the ladies. And the Home Guard, also known as local defence volunteers, who had nearly 1.5 million men enrolled by July 1940. That's a ridiculous amount of... um men to have by the uh, 1940. It was. And um, it worked to make the Battle of Britain the the most major German defeat in World War II. It was, um, because with the failure of Germany to establish air um, supremacy, Mm -hmm. the Battle of Britain was, as you said, the first major defeat of Hitler's military forces. And it is actually regarded by several historians as a crucial turning point to the Second World War. Um, the RAF achieved the greatest victory in preventing the plan of Nazi Germany to knock Great Britain out of the war, thus providing the Allied forces an important base in Europe. Yeah, they they definitely did that. I mean, we, I don't honestly know how the war would have gone without that victory. No. So, that's pretty much, in a nutshell, that's it for the Battle of Britain. Um, firstly, obviously, a massive, massive thank you the vast majority of you are gone now but a massive thank you to each and every one of you whether in the sky or on the ground yeah personally for me i think like you said a lot of people aren't with us anymore Mm -hmm. so i think as a the younger generations and younger than us i think it's like our duty to continue to teach and to talk about and remember world wars one and two because as the people who were in it are no longer here Mm -hmm. we have that we we couldn't do anything back there. We weren't even born for another what, no, thirty forty years. But if we can just teach it to somebody else to keep remembering it, I think that's our right, and that's how we can do our part for a war that has been over for seventy eight years since that battle. Yeah, and especially one that um, I don't think anybody has not been touched by that war in some respect. So, for no. example, um, I can state that my uh, my great uncle Jack, my yep. nan's uh, half brother. He was a he was in the navy in World War Two. Um, he was at Dunkirk. He returned um, from Dunkirk, and uh, he was actually in an air raid in Birmingham, where my family's from. And uh, him and my granddad, who was an intelligence officer, um, during this air raid, in the aftermath of the air raid, they were trying to get this family out of a house that had collapsed, and they had, the family had been trapped inside. My granddad said to his dying day, "This was one of his regrets." Um, Uncle Jack went back into the house. And uh, Grandad sent him back in, and the house collapsed, and he died. Wow. So that's a story that links me to the war. And to be honest with you, 
you can only understand history by your own personal links to it. Yeah. And I don't think, as I said, I don't think anyone's been untouched. No. So. Want to leave on a slightly lighter note. We do. We, we do. are coming to the end, and normally we do a ridiculous death. But I feel that no death in World War Two can be said as ridiculous. It was too big of a thing, and it's still too raw, too fresh. To yeah. Call any of the deaths ridiculous. So, we found something else, haven't we, Gary? We found a ridiculous survival. Ladies and gentlemen, here is the story of Raymond Tower Holmes, who was a British Royal Air Force fighter pilot during the Second World War and fought on that fateful day, the 15th of September. And here is what happened to him on the 15th of September. His plane, basically, he rammed another plane in his to try and get them down. And uh, he... He was trying to stop them from bombing Buckingham Palace. There was a Dornier that was heading towards the Buckingham Palace and um, he flew, he avoided the machine gun fire and uh, he got round in front of the Dornier and um, he decided that his machine guns, his machine guns had failed. Oh God. So <laughs> instead of basically firing at the plane, he fired himself at the plane and uh, he rammed the bomber. Um, he flew his plane into the top side of it, cutting off the rear tail. And this is his account. These are his actual words. Um, As I fired, my ammunition gave out. I thought, hell, he's got away now. And there he was coming along, and his tail looked very fragile and very inviting. So I thought I'd just take off the tip of his tail. So I went straight at it along him and hit his port fin with my port wing. I thought, that will just take his fin off, and he'll never get home without the tail fin. I didn't allow for the fact that the tail fin was actually part of the main fuselage. Although I didn't know it at the time, I found out later that I'd knocked the whole back half of the aircraft off, including <laughs> the twin tails. That's that's all. I mean, he he saved it. He did. However, his hurricane then went down. Oh. And uh, he ejected. And uh, he he basically the um, the pilot of the Dornier, uh, Feldwebel Robert Zeber, bailed out, and he unfortunately died later of wounds. Um, but Holmes also his hurricane crashed 20 yards from where um, a group of people have been playing football near the grounds of Buckingham Palace okay. he himself ejected and uh, this is his story about how he ejected this is his ridiculous survival Okay. I got hold of the guy ropes and stopped the spinning and looked down I was right over the railway lines running into Victoria Station I thought hell I'm going to get electrocuted now after this oh, God. then I was swinging towards a row of houses I hit the roof of one and could not get any grip on the states in my stockinged feet. I slithered down the roof until I got to the gutter and thought, now I'm going to break my back and kill myself falling off a three-storey house. But as I fell, there was a sudden jerk and I stopped with just my toes on the ground. My canopy had snagged over an up-pipe running past the gutter that had stopped me, but both my feet were inside a dustbin. The lid was on the ground, the bin has obviously just been emptied. My two toes touched the bottom of the bin, but my heels were off the ground. So basically, he plummeted down towards electrified rail fences, got blown by a gust of wind into a roof, then went to fall off the roof, potentially to his death. His parachute got caught, and he landed with his toes just barely touching the ground. That is ridiculous. That That is... Someone was smiling down on him that day. He was supposed to survive. He was. That was Ray Holmes, and uh, that was Thomas After Hours. Thank you for listening, and we'll speak to you next week. Bye.